All right. Um, so what I want to do is just give us a, a little bit of review and then um, and then and then jump into this final section. We kind of already introduced the final section a little bit last week, but you know we didn't we didn't get very far and we didn't do a whole lot of out. Um, outlining of it, which I want to do now. What we did last week, just for by way of review, is we talked about the fact that um, coming out of Isaiah 53, which is the fourth servant song, the most significant servant song, the one that really answers all the questions that you've had about the servant, you know from Isaiah 40 to 55 that the servant is kind of the means by which God will affect his restoration of his people. And there, there, there are a couple of different means. You know, he's going to use Cyrus in the short term. But, but, but ultimately, it's all centered on the servant. We might say, ultimately, it's all centered on Christ. And Isaiah 40 to 55 makes that really clear. And then within that, there are these four servant songs and 53, actually starting back at 52, but Isaiah 53 is what we're most familiar with. That's the kind of servant song that answers all the important servant song questions, which is why we keep going back to Isaiah 53. It's the best known chapter in Isaiah, and it's the most quoted chapter in the whole Old Testament by the New Testament writers. It's, it depends how you count it. It could be Psalm 110 as well. But in other words, it's, it's, but it's, it's right up there. It's really significant. So after 53, what you realize is, the, um, the servant is going to be the way in which God will reconcile himself with his people because their sins need to be forgiven, but he's going to lay on the servant the iniquity of us all. All we like sheep have gone astray, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us. That's the, that's the real heart of Isaiah 53. And then, amazingly enough, in Isaiah 53... We see that the servant is killed, but then at the end he's vindicated. And Isaiah 53 doesn't detail, you know, three days in the tomb and a resurrection. But it, in a sense, it's all there. It's all framed out in that chapter. So then, after you get out of that, the question is, well then, what's the result of that? What is that going to mean for God's people? And what we really spent time talking about last week was the fact that the way Isaiah frames it is, okay... Because of the work of the servant, the substitutionary atonement work of the servant, what that then does is it brings God's people into this eternal covenant. And so last week we spent some time bouncing around to different passages that use the same language as Isaiah, including Ezekiel, including Deuteronomy, including the book of Hebrews, where it basically says that we're in this covenant, that those who are in Christ are or in, a, in this eternal covenant with God. And we talked about the implications of that covenantal shape of our salvation. Now, we're kind of still in that section, and we're still in that mode, where we're trying to answer the question, what is the effect then of the work of the servant? What's the effect? I'll just use New Testament language. What's the effect of this work of Christ, this substitutionary work of Christ? He brings people into an eternal covenant. And if you turn to Isaiah 55, and this is really where we left off, what that means is that Isaiah can preach, and Paul actually preaches essentially the same sermon on a number of occasions. What Isaiah can say in Isaiah 55 is, now everyone who wants to enjoy this, come, 
Come to the waters. Jesus actually quotes from this. And he says, you need to come to me. And you come to me and you won't thirst. And I'm the source of living water. It's what he says to the woman at the well. It's what he says in John 7 at the end of the, uh, at the, at the, end of the Feast of Purification. And so he's, he's appropriating all this and saying what the, the takeaway is, if you know this to be true about the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, then the takeaway is you, you can come and receive this for yourself. You can be part of this eternal covenant. Come everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters. He who has no money. Come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. You're you're spending your money on things that never satisfy. You're pouring out your life on things that will never leave you whole. And so instead, abandon all that. Turn your back on all that and come to the waters. Come to the Lord. And so verse 6 is so relevant. Verses 6 and 7 of Isaiah 55. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. And it goes on to say, you know, basically, to extend this call. So what's the... And, and, and I said this last week, but I'll say it again because a number of uh, you weren't here. It... It's so interesting, isn't it? When you think about even your own life or you think about someone you know who has just, for the first time, grasped the truths of the gospel. Maybe they grew up in church, but it just never, you know, they just kind of checked off a box. They weren't really thinking. But now they really understand the message of the gospel and it's sort of the penny drops. Or maybe they they grew up totally away from spiritual things and the Lord saved them. And again, if we went around the room, maybe you would have stories like this. But what's interesting about this, just as a kind of observation, is that oftentimes, very often, when people first receive that, when their eyes are opened and the Lord works in their hearts, they have this eagerness to to share the gospel with other people. And sadly, it, it typically wanes after a little while, and then they just sort of go back to normal. For some people, it, it continues, but... But for a lot of us, it doesn't. But but that's kind of the that's kind of the feel of this section of Isaiah. Is what I'm saying, is that once he gets through the suffering servant section, where this is what the servant does, and this is how it answers all the questions that you have, then it immediately goes into this offer of the gospel. Now you come seek the Lord while he may be found. He's imploring uh, the people who are listening to him. All right, now. That's, that's all set up, but it's an important setup. Because like I said, we're still in that same mode when we get to Isaiah 56. But 56 through 66, which is the end of the book, is a kind of last section of the book. And so most commentaries, virtually every commentary that I'm familiar with, will, will look at 40 to 55 as a section and, and it does make sense if you look at it from a bit, from a kind of uh, forty thousand foot perspective. Uh, but fifty six through sixty six, what fifty six through sixty six really does is it it outlines, and, and Christ is still at the center of it, as we'll see. The servant is still at the center, although he's not called the servant here. But um, but but fifty six through sixty six really kind of portrays or or, or outlines. What the people of God, the renewed people of God, are to look like. So, so in other words, it's, it's, 
the people who have been redeemed by the work of the suffering servant and been brought into this eternal covenant with God, they've responded to the call of 55, come to the waters. Then what does that people look like? That's 56 through 66. What characterizes them? What are they about? What effect do they have on the world? In other words, and some commentators will come right out and say this, 56 through 66 is is a, you know, you're kind of in the church at this point. This is, this is what it looks like to have a covenant community of people who are, who again, are saved by God through the substitutionary work of the suffering servant. All right, so it's very relevant, 56 through 66. And one, um, one commentator have, has described it this way. He, he said, what you find when you, when you look at this is you find three characteristics, and I want to zero in on these. You, they, are, they are world people, and I'll try to explain what he means by that. He doesn't mean worldly. World people, Sabbath people, and praying So th- that you, we might abandon that slogan uh, as you study. You might want to tweak that. I might want to tweak that. But, but it's, it's a pretty good starting point to get a feel for what we're going to see in 56 through 66. What are these people like? Now, let me make one more connection before we tie into the text right, and, and really, really get into it. Um, for, for those of you who were here at the very beginning, whenever we started, Isaiah, 10 years ago, or whatever that was, um, that when we started, one of the, the very first thing we did, and we did it kind of every week, was I said, all right, let's look at the beginning of the book and the end of the book. Let, let, and, let's, and let's, from that, start to derive some questions and some, some big observations, some big themes. And what we saw when we did that was the beginning of the book says Jerusalem is like a prostitute. Jerusalem has left the Lord. Jerusalem is an unfaithful city. That's the portrayal. And, and it's, it's fleshed out in all kinds of ways. There are all kinds of specific things. But the point is the Lord, through Isaiah, basically looks at the city of Jerusalem and says, you know, you have abandoned me completely. You're sinning in all these ways. Now, the scary part about that was that that was written and preached at a time when most of the people hearing it were still attending public worship, were still going up to Jerusalem, were still checking off a box that said follower of Yahweh. So it's actually kind of a, in and of itself, it's kind of a scary series of sermons. Because here's the Lord basically saying, you have no part in me, you've totally abandoned me. And yet the people on the ground would have been saying, we're just, you know, we're still worshiping you. We're still following you. But, but, then, but then when we looked at the end, if you remember, so that's the beginning. The end, it describes Jerusalem in chapter 66 as this city, this beautiful bride adorned for the Lord. And, and 65 and 66 talk about this new heavens and new earth. And, and the Lord dwelling with his people in perfect fellowship and harmony and they're obedient to him and 
and and it's they're flourishing and, and they're they're happy and their their worship is acceptable to him. And the question we asked way back then was, how, okay, how do we how do, how does it move from point A to point B? I mean, that's a big distance. How does the faithless city and I I, I remember this is how I, this is how I put it at one point. How does the faithless city become the faithful city? Or how does the the what he calls the harlot city of Jerusalem become the bride in 66, 65 and 66? So that question has sort of been like floating over everything we've done in Isaiah. Because what I said at that time, and we're going to just see it played out now, is that's, that's kind of the storyline of Isaiah. The storyline of Isaiah is, here's where you are, but when we get to the end, here's where you are, here's where God's people are, and, and, and we should be like just reading voraciously, trying to ask, answer the question, well, how does that happen? How do they move from that point A to that point B? So, so again, from a big picture perspective, a sort of all of Isaiah perspective, this section is very important. And this section, and don't forget, if it's been a while since you've read the first 11 chapters of Isaiah, don't forget how different the portrayal in the first 11 chapters is from the portrayal in the last 11 chapters. The first section and the last section are bookends of the whole thing, and they couldn't be more different in terms of their description of Jerusalem. You with me so far? All makes sense? Okay. So then, so then let's try to answer that question. What is the redeemed people of God? What do they look like? What characterizes them? I've thrown this kind of answer out at you from one of my favorite commentaries on Isaiah, but maybe, maybe we'll tweak it a little bit, but it's a good starting place. He says, well, if I had to boil it down, what they are are world people, Sabbath people, and praying people. Now, what does he mean by world people? Um, what he means is this. He really means two things. Um, first, he means they are taken from all over the world. In other words, they're not, and this is important in Isaiah, particularly when Isaiah is preaching to Judah in the 7th century, uh, they're not just ethnic Jews. So that's one thing he means by world people. He means it's people, like Revelation says, from every people, tribe, tongue, and nation. That's one thing that he means by world people. There's another thing he means by world people as well, which ties into the story of the Old Testament. What he means by world people is not only are they taken from all nations, but they are a light to the nations in their, in their actions, in their worship, in their interaction with each other, in their covenant faithfulness. So they are both, and we might, and world might not be the best, because world, again, we're starting to think of, you know, when we hear that term, maybe worldliness. Maybe, maybe it would be better to say global people. Because what that means is they're from the whole globe and they're for the whole globe. They're for, they're, they're a light to the nations and they're from the nations. Let's see how this plays out. Um, verse, uh, I'm going to read verses 1 through 5 of this, of 56. And you're going to start to get a sense for maybe all of these aspects. Thus says the Lord... 
Keep justice and do righteousness. For soon my salvation will come and my righteousness will be revealed. Now that's sort of a, that's sort of a, he's almost starting with the application. Because remember, he's preaching in, uh, you know, 7th century Judah. And so here he's saying, all right, here's the takeaway from all this. What you need to do is keep justice and do righteousness. Because this is all going to happen soon. But they're kind of in the waiting mode. Blessed is the man who does this and the son of man who holds it fast. And look at, look at what it's going to look like, even in the interim for them, even before God does all that he's going to do. What should it look like? Blessed is the man who keeps the Sabbath, not proclaiming it, and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. Let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant. I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not become cut off. And I'm going to keep reading for a minute. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer. You might remember that Jesus quotes from that, for all peoples, uh, when he cleanses the temple. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. Now, again, remember the audience. Remember who Isaiah is preaching to. He's preaching to the people who have just heard all this. And he's saying, look, in the here and now, what are you supposed to do as you wait? What you're supposed to do as you wait is you're supposed to obey the Lord's law, obey his covenant, and keep his Sabbaths. Continue to seek the Lord in worship. And don't think to yourself, well, I'm a foreigner, so eventually in the restoration that the Lord's promised, he's going to cut me out. No, he's not going to cut you out. Actually, you're fully a part of it. And if you're a eunuch who, who has no... Uh, who, who's never going to have children and who's not allowed to, to participate in parts of the sanctuary worship. Don't think, okay, well, there's no hope for me. No, no, there's hope for you. In fact, what the Lord will do is raise up spiritual offspring for you and, and find your worship acceptable and, and receive it and bring you into the house of prayer, as he calls it. And so all these elements... Are, are here as Isaiah preaches to the people, preparing them for what the Lord will do. And again, if you go back to this, it's not a bad description. It's, it's all kinds of people, and the Sabbath thing keeps coming up over and over again. We'll talk about that a little bit. And then, and then what are, what's, their, what's their life to consist of? What's the central component of their worship? The central component is that they are uh, a praying people. Um, and, you know, it, it, I should say this, throughout the, the history of the church, um, very often at periods where the church has been beset on all sides and kind of standing apart in, a, in an increasingly obvious way from the culture at large, one of the labels, you, you read about it over and over again in church history, you read about it in the first century, the second century, all kinds of different places later on. Um, the, the Christians are, are, are known as, as people who pray. And, and, and 
that's that's characteristic of their worship. There's a sense in which even even the singing that we do um, in the earliest centuries of the church, one of the things that's a little bit peculiar or has caused people to question is in some of the earliest centuries, in the second century, the third century, you don't, you don't read a lot about Christians gathering together and singing. They're, 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 but, but, but what's interesting about that is actually they are gathering together and singing. It's just that what you find when you dig into the sources is that they're, they're doing that. They're doing a lot of what we would do, but, but they're calling it prayer. They're referring to it as the prayers. And, and so, again, having this central focus in our worship and in our lives, it's, it's what's right here in Isaiah uh, 56. Now, the fact of the matter is that in the time in which Isaiah is pro- prophesying all this, uh, the leaders of Israel, uh, of Judah, uh, don't get it. And so while he's calling the people, even the people from other nations, to join themselves to the Lord as they wait for his promised Messiah, um, basically the reality of the leadership is that they're all drinking their days away. They don't know anything. That's the description really in verses um, 9 through 12. And... Um, and, and, and the fact is, Isaiah says, um, while the Lord is preparing and, 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 and working to create this people for himself who are characterized by these kinds of things, right here, uh, in the here and now, the institutional religious structure of Israel is so corrupted that, um, that if you if you think this way, if you worship in this way, if you seek the Lord in this way, you're going to be cutting against the grain, even of your own spiritual leaders. So it's kind of, um, I know someone who grew up in the church, and it was a very um, liberal church, and didn't open the Bible really at all, and uh, heard that he heard the gospel for, in, a, in a really clear way. In, in his late twenties, and and when when all of this became clear to him, he uh, he went to the pastor who he'd grown up under, the minister he'd grown up under, and, and and basically what happened was the minister essentially tried to talk him out of it. You know, you, you shouldn't be reading your Bible. You, you, you know, this is you, you shouldn't be taking it seriously. You need to understand it from a you know critical perspective, and uh, tried to give him all these books on philosophy. In other words. What was going on was it was very clear that the 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 quote unquote religious and Christian structure was actually diametrically opposed to to the things of God, and actually had had had, um, uh, had abandoned altogether the presence of God. Uh, you could say, from the standpoint of Revelation, the lampstand had been taken away, and this happens today too. I mean. Uh, Dr. Phillips alluded to, um, I, th- I can't remember whether it was Wednesday night or, or last Sunday. Uh, I guess it must have been Wednesday. He, he alluded to um, a pastor friend of his, and I, and I happen to know who he is. He's a friend of mine as well, who, um, who was just basically very mercilessly kicked out of his church. And he really, I mean, everybody makes mistakes, but he really hadn't done anything wrong. All, all he was doing was preaching the word of God. And actually people were being 
were being brought to faith by the dozens. It was a, it was a remarkable thing, hundreds over over a year or two. But 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 the leadership said that's not what we want, um, and and so he had to go, and, and that's kind of the situation in Isaiah fifty six for the people of God. Uh, the leadership is going to be totally against them. And then, if that wasn't bad enough, what's actually going to happen is in the future, and this is Isaiah 57's message, in the future, um, it's not going to get better for a while. So what Isaiah is going to say to them in Isaiah 57 is, not only is the infrastructure, the spiritual infrastructure, at odds with the message of the gospel now, but future generations are going to continue in idolatry for quite some time. The Lord will always preserve a remnant. He always does that. But, but nonetheless, it's not going to get better for, for a little while. And, um, and, and basically what's going to happen is they're going to amass for themselves idols to worship. But when the chips are down, one of the problems with idols is it's like bad friends. When, when you need them the most... Or when you think you know you got they got to deliver for you, they, they're nowhere to be found, and that's what's going to happen in the future, according to Isaiah fifty-seven. However, look at verse fourteen. It shall be said, "Build up, build up, prepare the way, remove every obstruction from my people's way." For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. For I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry. Um, this is again pick, quoted in the New Testament. For the spirit would grow faint before me in the breath of life that I made. Because of the iniquity of his unjust gain, I was angry. I struck him. I hid my face and was angry. But he went on backsliding in the way of his own heart. I've seen his ways, but I will heal him. I will lead him and restore comfort to him and his mourners, creating the fruit of the lips, peace, peace, to the far and to the near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. But the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. Now, this is the, this is the hope at the end of 57. Isaiah says, all right, here's what you need to do right now. Be praying people, global people, hopeful people, Sabbath people. You're cutting against the grain of your leadership. The generations that follow you aren't going to honor this. In fact, they're going to slide off into idolatry. But there is a point, there is a light at the end of the tunnel. There is a point at which I will vindicate the people who continue to trust in me, the people who continue to seek me, and, and actually restore them and, and, and this isn't going to go on forever. I'm not going to drag this on forever. There is a time of vindication coming. But for the wicked, no rest. That they're ultimately going to go off into total um, destruction. Now, now, I want to... What time is it? Oh, it's 10.40. Okay, we don't have a lot of time. But I want to I drill down into one more thing. And 58 is the perfect place to do it. And, and I'll... And I'll and I'll ask it in the form of a question, because look at this um, in 58. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to actually go to the end of 58. What he, says at the end, what he says throughout 58 is, here's how to um, 
here's how, here's what repentance looks like. All right, here's what a repentant person looks like. And but in 13 and 14, he he zeroes in on this in particular. If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, and the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it, not going your own ways, or seeking your own pleasure, or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord, and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Now, we've actually seen this before, right? Because back uh, when we were started looking at 56, it's the Sabbath, 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 Sabbath. Like that was kind of all infused in the description of the, the, real, the repentant people, the people who really love the Lord and trusted Him. And here it comes up again as like the, almost the clearest sign of someone who has repented of his sin and turned to the Lord. There are other ones that we didn't read in 58 just because of time. But the clearest one, the one at the end, is like, all right, if you, want to, if you want to boil it down to one thing, the one thing is um, just begin observing the Sabbath. And so the question I want to kind of ask, and we may not get to answer it today because of time, but I want to ask it at least, is um, why do you think the Lord considers that so important in Isaiah? Like, this... This might not surprise us from a New Testament perspective, right? We know that the church is global, that people of every tribe and tongue and nation is Jew and Gentile. This, we don't really embody this, but we know we should, and we, we kind of know it's, it's central to our identity, or it should be central to our identity. But this might seem to stick out. Why do you think for the Lord in these chapters it comes up over and over again? In other words, what's the significance of this command in particular? It just I'm asking an opinion question. You don't have to know the answer. Just just think it through, talk it through out loud. Uh, why do you think that would be? Why why does Isaiah come to this? It's not it's not how we would have written the sermon. I don't think there, there aren't the things that we would have chosen to highlight. It's not one of the things that we would have chosen to highlight. I don't think. So, so why do you think Isaiah highlights it, or why does the Lord consider it to be so central, so foundational? Any thoughts? Yeah, Emma. In, in 57, <clears throat> when, he, when Isaiah and God are speaking about his promise of rest, yeah. and that that's kind of the end that he promises the people of Israel and his people, and the Sabbath is... A provision of rest that reminds us of our coming rest, as well as the rest that God took at creation. Is that like a, a taste of that rest that we will fully have one day? Yeah, well, that's great. I think you packed a lot in there, actually. So, this what you the point, the main point you were making is the Sabbath is is a a kind of something that you do in hope. It's it's something that you do that reminds you of what you're looking forward to. But also uh, banks on what you're looking forward to. It's like it's like if I said to you, no, look seriously. If you if you give if you give your friend this ten dollars, I'll give you a hundred. And you're like, will you? Won't you? This is my last ten. Um, 
And, and, and the Sabbath's a little bit like that. The Lord says, if you, if you rest, you're, you're looking forward to this great rest I will give you. Um, and, and you're kind of acting in hope. You're, 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 do, you're stopping, but you're stopping because of a future promise. So I think you're right. There's a, there's a sort of future, forward-looking, hopeful aspect. And also, by doing that, you're saying, this is the most important thing. This future thing is more important than this present thing. So you're kind of trusting in the future, relying on the future, pointing to the future. But Emma, at the very end, you also, I think that was your main point, was the future orientation. And that's really good. But at the, at the end, you also kind of threw in this whole theological tome, which was that it also kind of points back because, because the structure of creation is such that God rests at the end. If you read Exodus 20, when the Sabbath command is kind of uh, you know, codified by Moses, that's what he says, because in six days the Lord created the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh day he rested. So from in the terms of the Mosaic law, it's also kind of backward looking, because you're saying this is how the Lord structured his week, so to speak, his work of creation in the week, and that's, that's, that's I'm, I'm going to do the same thing. Uh, but I think you're right. The emphasis is more on this. Um, that's good. That's really good. That encompasses a lot. Any other thoughts about this? Yeah. Could it also be because um, uh, there's supposed to be a world people, and so being a light to the world in one of the most obvious ways is by keeping the Sabbath. Yeah, that's ex- and, and and actually the Mosaic Law makes that point too. You know, it says by not keeping the Sabbath, you're just like everybody else. So so how different do you, because because. You know, there are, diff- there are ways that you can set yourself apart. Think about this even today. There are ways you can set yourself apart from other people. You can set yourself apart from other people by uh, how you talk or how you spend your money, um, how you dress. And, and, you know, some of those are legitimate. A lot of those are legitimate. There are, there are times and places to set yourself apart from the world in those ways. Uh, but in the law, there's one way that everyone can set themselves apart from the world. And that's by their understanding of time, because um, y- y- you know that that's something that all of us experience in the same way, right? If you have if you have a hundred million dollars, your day is still twenty four hours. If you are in debt, a hundred million dollars, your day is still twenty four hours, right? You're still doing the same seven days, um, it is, uh, and you experience it in the same way. And so, setting apart time is a kind of it's a kind of light to the nations, isn't it? You're, 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 it's something really different. And, and people can't help but notice it. So there's a holiness aspect to it that is evangelistic in Isaiah's mind. Anything else? Any other thoughts? One more thing that I'll just throw out there, and, and it's, worth reflecting on is what would they do on the Sabbath? I mean, just think about Jesus. What was, have you ever noticed this little throwaway line that you get in the Gospels? You know, Jesus uh, went to the synagogue on the, in, in, in Nazareth on the Sabbath day, as was his custom. And you go, wow, if anyone, you know, like if anyone was going to be bothered by the sermon um, and, 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 you know, be kind of upset by the people around him, the hypocrites that he was sitting with, it would be Jesus. Um, you know, if anyone had a 
kind of legitimate reason to say, I can't stand being with these people. They don't actually get it. And, and I can't stand the guy who's standing up there preaching the word because I could do it better than him. It would be Jesus, but that's not Jesus' attitude, right? Because he's always in the synagogue, as was his custom, it says. And so this is enough, uh, I think, future, past, light to the nations, but also, right, it's, it's, it's worship. What do you do on the Sabbath? Well, you worship God. You're not, this is the point of the end of 58. You're not seeking your own pleasure. You're, you're calling the holy day of the Lord honorable. You're taking delight in the Lord on that day. So every other day you're saying, you know, I got stuff to do. I'm thinking about myself and that's not, not in a bad way. I mean, not even in a sinful way necessarily, although it can become sinful, but like I got to put food on the table. I got to put a roof over my kid's head and blah, blah, blah. I got to, you know, pay for their college, whatever. But, 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 but on the Sabbath, I, I, uh, uh, you know, it's the Lord. That's what we're focused on, is the Lord. And and that's profound as well. Because, because we're offering this time, um, which has all this future and past significance, we're offering this time, and we're saying, this is, this is given over to the Lord. So what you start to realize is, it's not peripheral, it's actually, because it, it, if you take, if you, if you take all this away, then kind of like, what, what are you as a person um, and, and as, a, as a worshiping community? Um, if you're not doing the light to the nations thing, looking to the future, trust, looking to the past and, and, and worshiping God, then from Isaiah's perspective, what claim are you really having here to, 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 to being part of, of God's covenant? so much more to be said and I know this raises perhaps even more questions than it answers but but we're out of time so let me pray and then we'll, we'll uh, um, adjourn Lord thank you for your word stimulating but also we know we're not even getting to the bottom of it really even scratching the surface of it so please continue to work in us continue to teach us you are our teacher ultimately and so we pray that you're by your spirit you would continue the work of teaching and learning that we're just making a beginning uh, of today and uh, and use all of this to, to stimulate us to love and good deeds and to service to you and love for you. And we ask all this in Jesus' name.